This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. If a negotiation is a voluntary process, why is it that so many people walk away from the negotiation table with bad deals? Up next from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford University, Margaret Neal, professor of organizations and dispute resolution at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, discusses the psychological barriers to successful negotiation. This audio presentation is brought to you by Stanford Social Innovation Review, courtesy of the Center for Social Innovation. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. So I'd like to introduce you to our first afternoon speaker, Maggie Neal. Uh, Maggie is the John G. McCoy Bank One Corporation Professor of Organizations and Dispute Resolution at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She has been here 11 years, and she is a great, has been a great friend of the Center for Social Innovation and the Stanford Social Innovation Review. She has written extensively over 70 articles in her major research areas of bargaining and negotiation, distributed work groups, and team composition, learning, and performance. Her article in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, Are You Giving Away the Store? Strategies for Savvy Negotiation, is in your binder. Maggie is also the co-author of three books, including Negotiating Rationally, and the faculty director for Stanford Executive Education Programs. And uh, welcome, Maggie. We're going to talk about negotiation. Um, it's a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I've been conducting research um, since the late 1970s on the topic. And what drove me to want to study negotiation is because I was so abysmal at it, lending credence to that notion that faculty do what they are worst at. Um, and so I really did try to become more effective as a negotiator. What we're going to talk about is the psychology of the deal. And what I want to sort of highlight here is this notion of winners taking all. You know, if you're really good in negotiation, your counterparts, regardless of how they objectively do, will believe that they've won. And that's the whole notion about winners don't always take all. Um, but one of the things that I want to be able to do at the end of every negotiation is I want my counterparts to believe that they have done a great job, that they have won. And, quite frankly, what I also want to do, I want to create as much value as I can in the interaction. So I want there to be synergy because we interact. But I also understand that with every negotiation, every bit of pie that is created, we've got to decide who gets what. And 
in many respects, okay, I do. I want to get more. Okay, that is true. So, and I want to give you some, some strategies and some tactics and some ways to think about negotiation that will help you both create value and then once you've created it, to take a major portion of that. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So the first thing I want to do is I actually want to expand your view of what negotiation is because most of us view negotiation as this adversarial process where there's a winner and a loser. And the task here is to get as much as I can, sort of reach, literally, metaphysically perhaps, to reach in, grab as much of whatever we're negotiating over and run out before my counterpart figures out what happens. But I don't want you to think about that, at least for the next hour and 15 minutes while we talk about negotiation. I want you to have a much broader view of negotiation. What I want you to think about is how often you negotiate. For example, certainly we negotiate when we attempt to sell or buy a house. And a lot, of, a lot of us think about negotiation in that format. Or perhaps for some of us, I would hazard to guess not all of us, when we took our last job, did you negotiate the terms of your employment contract? Some say yes, but all of you aren't saying yes. Some of you said thank you very much, right? And took what was offered. Right? So sometimes we negotiate, sometimes we don't. But think about the last time you were in a meeting in your organization. Did you think about that explicitly as a negotiation? I want you to start thinking about those meetings as negotiations because negotiation is influence. Think about a negotiation. It's what we call an interdependent process. I can't get a deal unless you agree to it. That means you have volition and so do I. So here's the first point, and I'll probably come back to this again because I think it's really important. Whenever you are, you have received a, very, a, a bad deal in a negotiation, you are not the victim. You are the perpetrator. You agreed to that bad deal. So don't blame anybody else. Because negotiation is a voluntary process. You can always walk away. Now that is not to say that there aren't huge psychological pressures to push you in the direction of saying yes. And certainly, if you're negotiating with me, I'm going to try to get you to say yes. But I have to do it through influence. Because if I put a gun to your head, head and say, you know, your money or your life, this is not the first offer in a negotiation, right? A negotiation is a process whereby two or more parties decide what each will give and take in the context of their relationship. So when I'm in that meeting, I'm in that meeting, and if I call that meeting, I've got you in that meeting because you have some resources that I need. And obviously you're at that meeting because I have something that you need, whether it's tangible or intangible. And part of what we're doing in that meeting is we're deciding what each will contribute to the task, to the idea, to the project, and what each will extract in that interaction. So I want you to think more broadly about negotiation because what we're going to be talking about today applies equally as you confront the daunting task of trying to buy or sell a house or negotiate your employment contract or negotiate with your employees who are negotiating for their employment contract or what you do in a meeting. And so these are broad social skills. Now, Let's talk a little bit about 
what the goal of a negotiation is. Because we can have lots of different goals. Oftentimes, what people end up thinking about is, you know, in a very simple-minded way, is my goal is to win. And if that's your goal, that's great, because a very skilled counterpart can get you to think that you've won when you haven't. But hey, that's cool. You know, you'll feel good about it. Maybe your goal is to create value. Maybe what you want to do is you want to take advantage of the potential synergy that exists between you and your counterpart that makes not only you and them better off, but also the community, the world. I mean, you want to actually create something. That's great. That's a laudable goal. By the way, so is winning, but you know, okay. Um, you may want to develop a relationship. Maybe what your goal is in this negotiation, in this interaction, is you want to enhance the quality of the relationship between the parties. But regardless of what your goal is, and there could be many others, the goal of a negotiation, the goal of any negotiation, is to get a good deal. Now, I can tell by at least the, the uh, facial expressions on, for, of some of you that you're stunned by the insight of that, <laughs> right? Wow, the goal is to get a good deal. No, no, no. You know, here it is Tuesday. It's bad deal day. That's what I'm looking for. Anybody here got a bad deal? Of course the goal is to get a good deal. What a silly thing to think, right? Except, except that every one of you here multiple times in your lives, probably this week sometime, okay, it's early in the week, maybe last week, have knowingly and voluntarily taken a bad deal. Why'd you do it? That's really stupid, don't you think? You voluntarily take a deal you know is bad. Well, it's those psychological processes. Sometimes we don't think we really have a choice when, in fact, we do have a choice. Sometimes it's, it's just too hard to say no. So we take a deal, because it's too hard at the moment to say no, but then, of course, the next day, the next week, the next month, we say, what an idiot. Right now, it could also be that you've taken a bad deal because you negotiated something over which you had no clue whether it was good or bad. What you did is you transformed your goal from getting a good deal to getting a deal, any deal, just get me out of this negotiation situation, right? How can you say yes to something that you have no idea what the impact is? Another stupid behavior. Now, were it enough for me to just identify your stupid behaviors, this could be, we could actually go out and have a nice tour of the campus. Unfortunately, it, you already knew that was stupid. I didn't give you any new insight there. What I'm hoping to give you by the end of the session is a little bit of discipline and a way to try to figure out how to resist the siren call of deals. Because people want you to say yes. And you know what? Sometimes to be really effective in your job, you have to say no. So let's talk a little bit about that. So one of the things that we do know, you know, when you have bad deals, one of the characteristics of them is oftentimes you leave resources on the table. That is, you don't create as much value as you might have. So the question is, why would that happen? Well, there are a number of reasons. One is that we have this incredible, persistent belief that negotiations are what we call zero-sum. Whatever I get, I get at your expense. Whatever you get, you have to take from me. 
That's the zero-sum nature of it. That, that assumption, that myth, is so pervasive that we don't even check out the alternative that maybe there's an opportunity to create some value. So we look at what appear to be the resources on the table and we divide them up. And we ignore the opportunities for value creation. We also may leave resources on the table because we have not done a very good job of preparing for the negotiation. Especially those of us who hate negotiations, who feel really inadequate in that kind of interaction, probably don't prepare very much either because it just reminds you of what you're about to do and you don't want to do that either. But it turns out that one of the big distinguishing characteristics of successful negotiators from their less successful counterparts is the quality of their preparation. And we're going to talk a little bit about that preparation. But you know what I'm telling you? We're going to talk a little bit about stuff because we have an hour and 15 minutes. I usually have 30 hours of contact time. And so I can't talk that fast here to get all that stuff. So we're just going to have to kind of pick and choose about what we're going to focus on. So what I'm going to be doing is focus on things that I think are really important and also really memorable to try to get you to sort of think about that. Also, we're going to talk a little bit about our reliance on cognitive shortcuts or biases that we have. It's, it's sort of, we don't like to think. That's one of those problems with being human. Thinking is very costly to us. And so we spend all of our lives trying as much as we can to engage in behavior that is best characterized as mindless. Right? Mindless. Habit. Right? What routine. We love that stuff because when we have to think, it hurts. And so we don't want to think unless we're absolutely forced to. So what happens is we use these heuristics, these biases, they're shortcuts. They get us to an answer that's okay, but maybe not good enough. It'll, you know, it's survivable. And finally, we may get leave resources on the table because we may even know we're leaving resources on the table, but we don't have the discipline to make the hard choices. And we may not have done the analysis to figure out what those hard choices are. So let's see what we can do here. Well, one of the biggest problems that we face, and I face, and you face, as we negotiate or as I teach negotiations is to try to understand that one of the big problems in negotiation is this simultaneous invoking of both competition and cooperation. The notion of value creation is a, co is a cooperative one, a collaborative venture. I create value because of your and my interaction. But once I create that value, I have to allocate it, which is a competitive motive. And so it is trying to manage these two motives simultaneously that makes it so difficult for us. We're not good at this particular dance. And so what happens is we tend to simplify, so we act as if all negotiations are just about competing. Or we're much more comfortable with that. So let me give you an issue. Let me just sort of highlight. I want to talk a little bit about some research that's been done that actually, to me, is powerful in the effects that it has on our behavior. And that is, the, sort of the previous last statement was, we act as if. We expect negotiations to be zero-sum. So what I want to talk to you about for a moment is the power of expectations. I'm going to step away from negotiation for a minute. I'm going to talk about different types of expectations and talk about some of the research that's been done. I want to talk about, for example, self-fulfilling prophecies and the Pygmalion effect. How many of you remember that? You've all had the course, I'm sure. Most, some people have. There are people here who don't know what the Pygmalion... Let me just quickly tell you what that is. Um, in, the, in the sort of late 60s, Robert Rosenthal, who was a professor of psychology at Harvard, um, 
he was a social psychologist. And let me tell you, those were the good old days of social psychology. You could do really cool stuff, right? You could take, as Rosenthal did, he went to the sixth grade teachers in the Boston school system and lied to them. What he said was, we have done extensive testing over the course of the summer with all your students. And we have identified, because of that testing, a subsample of your students who will blossom intellectually. The rest of the students will develop as normal sixth graders. But these, these people, these kids are going to be amazing. This was a complete fabrication. They had done nothing. What they had done is they had gone in and randomly assigned students, a small subset of the students from the sixth graders, they put, took, took a random assignment and put them in the intellectually blossoming group. There was no difference at the beginning. At the end of the academic year, he took the scores on the standard achievement tests that the students took. Now, he, we know in the beginning of the year, those students were no different. What do you think happened by the end of the year? The blossomers blossomed. Absolutely. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, in the, it was in the early or the mid-70s, you're on Stanford campus. Let me tell you what we got to do. I wasn't here. The Stanford prison experiments. Palo Alto police went to the homes of students. The students knew they were in the experiment. Dragged them, handcuffed, out of their homes into a police car, brought them to the basement of the Stanford Psych Building for a two-week experiment called the Stanford Prison Experiment. They were randomly assigned to guards or two prisoners. They had to stop the experiment, I think, you know, I want to say four days, but it could be as many as, it was four, right? Anybody know this for sure, four? I mean, because why? Because the guards got abusive and the prisoners got resistant. These were Stanford undergraduates. Hmm. Why, was Abu Gray something you didn't expect? Okay, just because we have the knowledge doesn't mean we use the knowledge, okay? That's, that's pretty clear. All right, well, there's a thing Shelby, um, I'm sorry, um, Claude Steele has done here, his brother Shelby Steele, uh, Claude Steele has done here, and it's called Stereotype Threat, and this is the really scary part. If you thought the sixth graders were scary, wait till you see this. So what he did was, and this is actually, a, he, he talked about Stereotype Threat, which he describes as the concern a person feels when, when they feel they might actually confirm a negative stereotype about their group. So for example, stereotype threat might be if I'm female and I'm about to take a math test, I might be concerned that I'm just going you know, to confirm that, that stereotype that women can't add. Right? So I'm concerned about that. But in being concerned about that, that begins to take up mental energy. And all of a sudden, by the end of the time, I end up reaffirming the stereotype I am most afraid of, of affirming. Stereotype threat. So what he did was he went, he got um, Stanford athletes, undergraduates, um, and he put them, and they were either, he got them based upon whether they were African American or whether they were white. And he basically told these students, we're going to have you play some golf. By the way, you know that golf is a game which really, you perform really well in one condition, he said, if you have natural sports and or natural ability. And to the other group, he said, you perform really well if, you have, if you're high in sports intelligence. Well, the stereotype is that white athletes typically dominate on sports intelligence, while black athletes or African-American athletes dominate on natural ability. So when the students, black and white, were told natural ability, the blacks did better than the whites in playing golf. 
And when they were told uh, sports intelligence, the whites did better. Nothing to do with their ability to play golf. It was this expectation. It gets worse, though. That's pretty bad. It gets worse. Let me tell you how easy it is to, well, I'm not going to tell you how easy, but consider, for example, if you were an Asian female, you've got two competing stereotypes. Your Asian stereotype, good in math. Your female stereotype, bad in math. <laughs> right. Well, the question is, what happens if we prime, before we give you a math test, we prime your Asian identity versus we prime your female identity? turns out your math performance is statistically significantly different. Much higher if we prime your Asian identity than we prime your female identity. But, you know, you guys are in the audience, or maybe you're not an athlete, or maybe you're not black, or you're not white, and you're thinking, thank God, and she's talking about somebody else. Okay? I could divide this room in half, and I can change your math performance <laughs> by doing the following. I go to this half of the room, and I say, you know what? We're going to give you a math test. And I assume that you've been randomly assigned to your chairs because I don't know why else you'd sit where you do, right? So I expect that between this half and that half of the room, there's not much difference in math capability on average. So I'd say to you guys, before you take the math test, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sort of forget for the moment that you are who you are in the real world. But what I want you to do is I want you to think about your life if you were not who you are, but you were a university professor. What would your life be like? Think about that for a minute. What would your daily today activities be? Maybe write a couple of sentences down about what it would be like. Then I give you the math test. And I go over here to these people, and I say, don't think about who you are in reality, but I want you to think about what a day in your life would be like if you were not you, but a soccer hooligan. <laughs> That's what the researchers chose, okay? Soccer hooligan. Think about it. How would your day be? Write a few sentences down about that. Now, take the math test. These guys will do significantly better than you guys. Kind of scary, isn't it? By the way, you should ask, how, do you how did you prime that Asian female to make her either good or bad in math, right? Here's the really scary part. Here's the prime. The top of the test, check your ethnicity. The top of the test, check your gender. That's it. Scary, huh? How many tests have you taken in your life that ask for those things? Okay. Think about it. Well, it goes on. In, <laughs> I know, it's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, there's no hope. Oh, there, but there is a hope. This is the whole point. You see, this is not about your true performance. This is about your expectations. So let's now apply it to negotiation, because after all, that's what I'm supposed to talk about. So, what we did, or actually not we, some of my colleagues of mine, I wish I had done this, but I really can't take credit for this study. What they did was, is they actually got a group of executives who were involved in a negotiation uh, course. It was the beginning of the course. And they said to them, they divided them up into two groups, and what they did was they had what we call cross-gendered dyads. That means a male was negotiating in opposition to a female. Okay? And so for half of those groups, they gave them the following information. Negotiators who, tend, who display the following behaviors tend to perform worse. They have a high regard for personal interest. They depend on assertive behaviors to move the negotiation forward. They rely on rational analysis, and they have limited displays of emotion. Those people do worse in negotiation. 
Now, I've given you a label called the male negative stereotype. The participants in the study never saw that label, okay? But that's just for us to talk about it with. For the other half of the males and females, right, they gave them the second uh, induction. They said people who display the following behaviors tend to perform worse in negotiations. They are passive or reactive in expressing their interest. They depend on their own listening skills. They rely on intuition and they display emotion. Those people do really badly in negotiations. So now, let's see. What they did was they actually had them engage in a negotiation, male against female. And they said, was there a difference based upon this induction? Well, here's the effects. And what you see here is, I want to point out a number of things here. First is that when people receive, when males and females receive the negative female stereotype, the males outperform the females. But when, the peep, when the, both males and females receive the negative male stereotype, the females outperform the males. And you'll notice that their performance of the top groups don't differ. So it wasn't that males did better than females in general. It was they did the same. But we can, we can influence people's expectations about who performs well, and then behavior follows the expectations. So, what we want to talk about, and what I think is important for us to consider is that if we expect certain sets of behaviors, those behaviors by our subsequent behavior will be realized. And that lots of the behaviors that we expect are socialized into us rather than any kind of deep basis for behavior besides that. It's our expectations, so in many respects, think about this, we are part and parcel to our own abuse. Just like in a negotiation, when you get a bad deal, you've agreed to it. Right? Your expectations, maybe it, this is all I deserve. Right? Maybe, maybe not. So, what I want to do is, I want to talk and spend some time talking about some real problems that people face when they negotiate. And I want to sort of um, focus on a couple of examples of this that I, that I hope will um, enhance your memory of, uh, of this talk. So one of the things that we know is that, that one of the real problems in negotiations is that, that, that sort of adherence to the myth of the fixed pie. So pe and what happened, what, how that gets played out oftentimes is we have this increasing escalation. People get more and more competitive, and, we, and, and all of a sudden it doesn't matter if we get a good deal or not, but I'm just going to beat the SOB, right? That's my goal. So let's talk a little bit about that. You've probably seen some examples of this, not just in negotiation, but in other parts of your life. Um, have any of you ever been in a bad relationship? <laughs> or knew somebody who was in one? <laughs> All right, yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, part of it is, is that what happened? What happened? Did you get out of it when you realized, hey, this is really bad. I think it's time to leave. Yeah? You're out. That's good. You're, you're rare. Most of us hang around. I used to be a marriage counselor. I've seen many of you hanging around. It's like, what was it that suggested you should stay in this relationship, okay? Bad relationship. The Vietnam War. You guys talk about whatever war you want. I'm talking about the Vietnam War, right? The Vietnam War. Johnson and his advisors knew, knew that we could not win the war given what we were willing to do. That was not a question. Yet Johnson continued, even with considerable resistance on the part of the American population, to continue sending more and more troops over. Why? What was his explanation? Because if we withdraw, 
We will dishonor those who have already given their lives. So we put more people at risk to justify the people that we have already killed. Is this reasonable? No, but it's an escalation of commitment. It becomes harder and harder to walk away the more and more resources we push into the direction. Adversarial negotiations, think about almost any merger and acquisition. This is probably not your area of expertise, mergers and acquisitions, but let me just give you an example. There was a really bad merger. There, most mergers, actually 53% of mergers fail, but that's a minor point. Some of them fail spectacularly. For example, AT&T in the early 90s bought a company called NCR. And it turns out that uh, when AT&T made its first bid for NCR, it was selling for about $43 a share on the stock market. When the smoke settled, AT&T paid $110.72 a share for NCR, and there were no other bidders. So just think about that. But we don't have to go that far. If I had a lot more time, I would give you a demonstration, but let me, I'm going to set you up, and then I'm just going to ask you to do a little thought experiment, think what you would do in that kind of situation. So let's talk about that $20 auction. So if we had more time, here's what I would do. I'd actually auction off a $20 bill, which I have here. This is a real $20 bill. There are some rules to my auction, so I want you to pay attention very closely, because if we were to auction off this $20 bill, I wouldn't want you complaining that I tricked you. First, the bids will start at a dollar, and every subsequent bid is a dollar more than the previous bid. All that means is we start at a dollar, it goes up by a dollar. Okay, you can't make a bid, you can't like start at six and the next person go eight. It's got to be one, two, three. Okay? No bidder can make two consecutive bids. So, for example, Brenda here could bid a dollar, but then she couldn't bid two unless Steve or someone else bid two, then she could bid three. Now, why Brenda would want to bid one and then two, I don't know, but I'm stopping her from bidding against herself, okay? <laughs> there is no talking except for bidding. So all you can do is bid. You can't be punching your neighbors and talking, okay? This is my game. The highest bidder pays me whatever he or she bid for the $20, and I give them the $20 bill, right? The second highest bidder pays but receives nothing. Okay? Those are my rules. You don't like my rules? You make your own auction. Okay? It's mine. So, let me ask you, what do you think is the, the largest amount of money that I have received for a $20 bill? $17. You have, I have 100 Okay? Any, do I hear more? Huh? 38 21. Well, for me, actually, Patrick was closest. For me, it is $353. Me, but other people have gotten a lot more. So those of you who are saying 17 and 21, what were you thinking? No, I mean, I mean seriously, that was actually a serious question. What, how would you, Yes. Absolutely, Joni. You're thinking, man, people are got to be idiots, right? Who would pay, who, what two people combined would pay $353 for a $20 bill? You know what? They were bankers. <laughs> so you'd think they'd know what a $20 bill was worth, wouldn't you? How 
could this possibly be the case? Well, let me suggest, right? First, before I tell you the answer, let me ask you, what do you think the optimal bid is in this game? One dollar. Well, that, now let me ask. Okay, so we're in a situation, we're in this room, and I actually start the bidding at one dollar. Is there anybody in here who would bid two? Yeah, it's not going to happen. I have never had it stop at one. Anybody else have an optimal bid they want to suggest? 19. Interesting. 18. I'll take either one because we're going to use them both. Okay, so somebody suggested 19 is the optimal bid because then you still make a dollar, right? So if there were a $19 bidder, must there not have been an $18 bidder? Okay. So let's say, for example, I can't see your name today, Barbara. Barbara is the $18 bidder, and Nadine is the $19 bidder. What are you going to do, Barbara? You're faced with this. You bid 18, Nadine bids 19. What's your choice? Okay, 20. Okay, Nadine, you bid 19. She's bid 20. What do you do? You're going to stop? You're going to lose $19 for certain. Yep. Good for you. Nice response. Most people don't. What do most people do? They go to 21. And then, let's just say that Nadine is not as smart as she is. She says 21. Let's go back. Barbara, what do you do? Lose 20 for certain or lose two? Which do you do? Most people go, and then we're off to the races. So what is the optimal bid? Do not bid. Now, most people don't realize that because they get caught up in thinking about, wow, for a dollar I can get $20, cool. Which, here's the problem. That assumes that $1 optimal bid too, assumes that everybody else in the room is grass. <laughs> now, what do I mean by that? They're not strategic. They're not working on their own interests. Right? If it's, if it's rational for you to bid a dollar, let me tell you, they're going to bid too. Right? So here's the problem. We make a lot of interdependent social decisions without ever giving serious consideration to what's going on in the heads of the other parties in the room. And they aren't grass. You don't have to worry about that grass. When you were eating lunch out there, you didn't have to worry about stepping on it. It wasn't going to do anything to you. But if that was a lot, for example, if that were my dogs out there, you'd have to worry because they'd be going, food, give me food now. Right? My dog is completely strategic. Right? Strategic dogs died off a long time. Non-strategic dogs died off a long time ago. Right? That, those dogs can get you to give them. They look at you like they love you, and you give them food. Okay? Well, let me tell you, we human beings are a little more dangerous. We're not just after food. We're after a lot of other things. Here's what happens. We ignore what's going on in the heads of our counterparts. But we also, and this is the big one, we get confused. Business schools, let me tell you what, one of the hardest things for business schools to do. See, I'm trying not to get over there because it's going to squeak at me. I realize I'm over there and I go, God, I have to get back over here. One of the hard ones we spend the entire first year. Now, business schools will tell you they do other things, but let me, this is the big thing that business schools do in the first year. They try to teach at a very basic level the following sentence so that people understand it. Ignore sunk costs. Pay attention to opportunity costs. Now, that seems like a pretty simple sentence, doesn't it? But we human beings 
have an incredibly difficult time to ignore sunk costs. So what we end up doing, what most of us do, is we ignore opportunity costs and pay attention to sunk costs. And the reason, you know what a sunk cost is? It's a cost that is unrecoverable. Like the guys who died in Vietnam, this is the ultimate sunk cost. They are dead. There is nothing we can do to bring them back. So our decisions that go forward should not try to justify our past actions, but should question what are we doing about the opportunities that we have going forward. But we human beings, you see, the reality is you have never paid an opportunity cost. It is a foregone opportunity, but you have paid every sunk cost. And so in our minds, they loom much larger. So it's very hard for us to ignore our past and say, let's look at the resources as we have them right now. What is the best decision? Because we are bound to our past through the costs that we have paid, the decisions that we have made in the past, which is why marriage counseling is never going to go out of business. Just want to show you a quick study that was done a long time ago. This was a, it was a great title. It was called Knee Deep in the Big Muddy because it was a, a takeoff on that, that joke about, you know, when you're up to your butt in alligators, knee deep in the big muddy. Turns out that when you have responsibility for a decision, your escalation is much more likely to occur, and it is much more likely to occur when you get negative consequences. So I make a decision. I'm responsible. I get negative feedback. It didn't work. What do I do? I commit significantly more resources than if I got positive feedback, it did work, or if I got negative feedback, but I didn't make the first decision. So think about many of our governmental programs. They don't work, so what do we do? Give them more money. By the way, it's not just government programs. It turns out there is this equivalent of corporate socialism in organizations because poorly performing units actually get more, well, well, typically what happens is when in corporate America, with good performing units get more resources than poor performing units. But if you compare them, it turns out that the poor performing units get more resources than they should, given their performance, and the highly performing units get less resources than they should. So we kind of just moderate, right? Absolutely. So what is it about this escalation phenomenon? What are the factors that lead us into escalation? And I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions. Framing, hubris, overconfidence, and the search for confirming evidence. So, for example, and by the way, if you've read the article that I wrote, which I'm sure is the reason why you're here, right? <laughs> then you're, this is going to be old hat to you, so I'm going to go through it pretty quickly. And if you want more detail, you can go back to the article. But negotiators and decision makers are influenced by how we frame or present an argument. Let me give you an example. Here's a quick example. Uh, this is, this is um, in, the, in the article I used uh, Kahneman Tversky's dread disease example. Here's a, a more organizational variant of that. A large car manufacturer has recently been hit with a number of economic difficulties, and it appears as if three plants need to be closed and 6,000 employees laid off. The vice president of production has developed two plans to avoid this crisis. Plan A, this plan will save one of three plants and 2,000 jobs. And plan B. This plan has a one-third probability of saving all three plants and all 6,000 jobs. When we present these two options to executives, to MBA students, to people, to, to executives around the world, it turns out that about 76% of respondents will choose option A. And probably if you were forced to make a choice here, you would choose option A. 
That's not particularly interesting. Here's the interesting part. Okay, two more plans. Same thing, but plan A. This plan will close two or three plants and 4,000 jobs. Or this plan has a two-thirds probability of closing all three plants and all 6,000 jobs, but a one-third probability of closing no plants and no jobs. And 87% of respondents pick B. Now, there is no difference between big A and little a in terms of its expected value, because if I have three plants at risk and 6,000 employees, but I save one and two, I have to have killed two and 4,000. But when I tell you losing two plants and 4,000 jobs, you go, no, 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 give me the risk. So in this situation, when we are confronted with potential gains, we are risk averse. And we are confronted with potential losses, we are risk seeking. So in a negotiation, what's risk aversion? How does it play out? You accept my proposal. Risk seeking? You hold out. You're more adversarial. You're more, you, you hold out for something else. I'm going to wait. So how I frame my proposals can influence how much risk you are willing to take. And I can improve the likelihood that you will say yes if I frame my proposals and what you have to gain. I can get you to say no if I frame them in what you're likely to lose. Even though we may be starting exactly as this is, that the framing is just a convenience. It doesn't change the information content. When you have something to gain, we tend to like certainty, risk aversion. Take the certain thing, the bird in the hand, assuming you like birds, right, it's worth two in the bush. That's the certainty. However, and that's what the economists have been telling us for years, we human beings are risk averse. But what Kahneman Tversky told us was when you're confronted with potential losses, all of a sudden, risk looks good. Taking a loss for certain is a really negative experience. We don't want to do that. So losing two plants and 4,000 jobs, we don't want to do that. But it is exactly the same as saving one plant and 2,000. So it's just how it's framed. And to think if we can dramatically move people around, with just these little wording changes. Think about that. So, how about some hubris? What's hubris? Arrogance. Okay, this is great. CEOs are great examples of this. So, uh, Hayward and Hambrick, who were two researchers, developed two measures of what they called CEO hubris. They had two things. This was in a merger and acquisitions uh, example, but you'll enjoy this anyway. They had an index of media praise. So what they did was, before the merger, so a merger's announced, a merger goes through. So they took the time period from right before the merger was announced prior, for the year prior, and they counted, did a frequency count of the number of positive mentions of the acquiring of the buyer, not the seller, the acquiring company CEO in Businessweek, Newsweek, Fortune, Forbes, Barron's, all those, you know, news magazines, okay, business news magazines. Then what they also did as another measure of hubris is they took the CEO's compensation and made a ratio of it to the second in command. The more extreme the variation between the CEO and his or her second, in this case it was all his's, his second, right, the, the higher on the hubris score they were, right? So this is what they did, they compared it to. They looked at the 106 mergers in which the target, the target, that's the seller, the target was bought for $100 million during 89 to 92. And it turns out that they discovered statistically that each highly favorable mention in a media raised the price the buyer paid for the target. 
each favor will mention about the CEO, which is the acquiring CEO, not the target. This says nothing about what they're buying. This is about the guy doing the buying. Every highly favorable mention they had in the paper, they upped the price they paid by over 5%. Now we're talking millions and billions of dollars here. Or the higher the import on the CEO importance scale the CEO was, the larger the premium he paid for the target. So the, the bigger the disparity between what he paid and what the C, second in command, the more he paid because, of course, he knew. Now there was an interesting survey by Yale University and the Gallup organization who surveyed 130 prominent CEOs, many of whom you would recognize, some of whom are in jail now, but that's fine, um, and found that 26 believed that great leaders are, 26 percent believe that great leaders are born, not made. So coming out of the womb, I am a leader, okay, and then it, the rest of my life is just, right? Those that believe that leaders were born were actually far more likely to prefer growth through acquisitions. They didn't, do, they didn't grow organically, they bought, and they were so controlling that in setting their strategic plans, critiques by subordinates and even by their boards were typically ignored. So I know what to do. This is the hubristic notion, right? So, well, what leads us to, I'm going to try to make a transition here, overconfident, or what leads us to hubris? Well, one thing does is we're overconfident in our own skills and abilities. But you know, we don't have to go to CEOs to find overconfidence. In fact, I bet I can find it here. So we know that negotiators are more confident, are likely to be overconfident about obtaining outcomes that favor their position. So here's what I want to do. This is just a real quick and dirty example. What I have here is a Snapple bottle that has paper clips in it. These are paper clips you have seen before. These are the normal size paper clips, okay? So all I want you to do, it's a very simple example. They are counted. Put them back in. I want you to guess. This Snapple bottle is probably 80% filled. Did I just turn it no, up there? 80% filled with, with paper clips. I want you to guess the number of paper clips in my bottle. Just write down a number that you think you are, but don't worry about it. <laughs> this is not math. <laughs> this is not really counting because you haven't got time to count. Right? So, you know, here's a Snapple jar. You're familiar with it. This is a paper clips. You're familiar with that. Just write down the number of paper clips that you think are in my bottle. And by the way, trust me, seeing it up close won't help you. Because <laughs> we could even say, will he do better? Will she do better? No. But, you know, it's part of my theater, so I'm going to walk around and show them to you. Right? Okay? So, I'm going to come back up here. By that time, I want you all to have written down a number, which is your best guess of the number of paper clips in this bottle. Okay? Write that number down. Now, You've written that number down. Here's the hard part. What I want you to do now is I want you to give me a 95% confidence interval. Now, what I mean by that is I want you to give me a range in which you are 95% certain that number actually falls. If you wanted to be 100% certain, one to a million, I guarantee the number is in there. But I don't want you to be 100% certain. I want you to be 95% certain. Write down a range, a range in which you are 95% certain that this number actually falls. The actual number of paper clips in this jar 
is 488. Anybody get that number? No, got the exact number? Okay, phew, I want to get my bottle. How many of you, this is the next question, how many of you got, and I want you to hold your hands up proudly, got 488 in your range? Raise your, now look at, I want you guys to look around. What do you think? Maybe half? Keep your hands up. Be proud. You guys were, okay? About half, right? At best. Now, while any one of you could not have gotten it this time, you know, this could be Elizabeth made a range. This is the 5% time when she is wrong. That's a 95. But on average, 95% of you should have gotten it, right? And about 50% did. You guys suck. <laughs> at paper clips. You know, you can't guess paper clips worth, you know, anything. Now, you're probably also thinking, but Maggie, we don't care about paper clips. And I agree with you. I don't care if you can guess paper clips accurately. But what I do care about is that you know what you know and you know what you don't know. Why did you miss my number 488 in your range? What was the characteristic of your range? Too narrow. What would a narrow range suggest? I would be good at guessing paper clips. If you thought you were really bad at guessing paper clips, I was trying to help you too. I said one to a million. But no. You guys said, I'm good at this stuff. I can get those paper clips. You guys are overconfident. You're not the only ones. Investors, in a series of studies done by Odin and, and Barber in 1999, which gives these numbers a little more reason, basically found that while a series, after 13 studies they looked at, on average, investors thought that their stock, own personal stock portfolios would go up by 15%, while the market would go up by 13 not going to happen, okay? What's the market? The average profitability of investors. What's the, the, the average investor felt? That theirs was going to go up 2% above the average of the investors. It can't happen. But people thought that. The Lake Wobegon, you remember that place. It's the mythical place in Minnesota where all the men are strong, all the men are beautiful, the women are strong, and all the children are above average. Well, why do, we, why do we have overconfidence? Why does this happen to us? Well, it turns out, in any decision we make, we can choose among things we think we'll be successful and we can be correct. We can succeed, right? Or we can predict success, we can choose an option we think will be successful and we can fail. Or we can choose something we think will be a failure and we can be right, we can fail. Or we can choose something we think will fail and we can succeed. And so basically, any choice is one of those possibilities. But it turns out that we never look at that darkened column. When was the last time you were about to hire somebody, you said, wait a minute, you know what? I'm going to calibrate my judgment. I'm going to see how good I am. I'm going to hire this person I think will fail. <laughs> I'm going to choose this project that I think will fail to just see how good my decision-making is. You don't do that. So what happens is we never know what the world is really like, right? So that's why we're overconfident. We actually think we're much better in making these judgments because we don't really know what the objective nature of the quality of our judgments are. Now, what does that do? Well, they've got some great advantages. Overconfidence gets us to act. It does. And this is great, especially when there's learning by doing. 
So if, my, if, the, if the task or the situation allows me to learn as I engage in that task, then overconfidence is great. And it may increase my willingness to take risk if I'm too risk averse. But let me tell you the disadvantage. <laughs> what happens? I mean, you know, it's one thing if I'm a gardener and I'm out there trimming a big hedge, learning by doing, you know, what if I make a bad cut? Okay, it's going to, you know, for the most part, the odds are it's going to keep growing. I'll have a chance to try again. What if I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon? <laughs> learning by doing? Shall I do it on you? I don't think so, right? I don't want my surgeons learning by doing on me. And the last one I want to talk about, because all these lead together, is the search for confirming evidence. We go through our lives trying. We have implicit theories about how we think the world is, and we go through our lives reaffirming those theories. We find data and evidence in the world. There's lots of data and evidence out there. We pick the stuff that, makes, that agrees with what we already expect. This is why expectations are so powerful. And then we say, see, we were right. And the flat worlders have all the data they want to believe in the flat world because they've got their data they pay attention to, and the round worlders believe in other data. Right? So part of the issue here is your expectations, your, your previously or implicit theories drive your information search. It drives the information you weight, how much that information you pay attention to, and then you ignore or discount information that is inconsistent with your expectations. And that means there is no question that we learn from experience. The question is, what do we learn? Do we learn the right things? And that is a big question. Okay, here's what I want you to walk away with. You need to think, if I'm going to negotiate, what is the minimum I have to know in order to figure out if I have a good deal? And the first thing I have to know is, what are my alternatives? When, before I walk into a negotiation, I have done a very serious analysis of what are my options are if this deal tanks. Because what's your biggest source of power in a negotiation? Walking away. What fuels your ability to walk away? What your options are. So if you walk in without a good understanding of your options, you're lost. Secondly, I also need to know what my reservation price is. What's the bottom line? What is the point at which I am indifferent between saying yes and taking that option? And when I talk to you about a reservation price, I am not talking about that wishy-washy kind of, gosh, I really kind of hope I get this. I really can't pay more than that for a house, and then I pay more. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, if I have decided that I have a ten, I'm, will not pay more than $10 for this commodity in my head, this is my reservation price, and you come to me and you offer 10.05, the answer is no. Not maybe, no. That is one of your saving points. You have to have that line. You say no. Okay. So, any questions? Do you want to try questions? We started a little late, so Sure. Are you good at poker? You know, the problem with me is no. <laughs> but I don't play. So, you know, it's like you know what you're good at and know what you're not good at. 
Are the behaviors you described anchored in the culture of the United States, or are they applicable everywhere? So, Rosa's question is, you know, are these research studies only U.S.-centric? And there are some aspects which are U.S.-centric, but the, of my research, so I, I will absolutely admit freely. But the stuff on anchoring, on framing, the stuff on search for confirming evidence, all those biases, we've hit Africa, Asia, we have hit Australia, uh, Europe certainly, the America, you know, we have done our best to try, and the Middle East, we have done our best to make sure, and the, our best estimates are that these are conditions of the human beast, not of the American. But there are other things that are very much American in the work that I do, so good question. You talked about the um, tests where you had you know, Asian or women. Yeah. If you know that, if like one of us came up there now, knowing that in the back of our minds, and we took the test, does it still come out the same way, or can you overcome that? It turns bias? out, let me just give you, I, I can tell you the, the research from negotiation. If we say to women, women don't do very well in negotiation, so why don't you go out and do your best, they actually react. They create a reactance. They actually do much better than men. So once I know that, I can. So this, uh, this really is, in many respects, it's subconscious. It's non-conscious behavior. So, I'd, so I'm thinking about these things, but they are occurring because of these naturally occurring sort of processes. But if I say, well, women don't do very well, it's like, oh, yeah, watch me. Right. I really appreciate how broadly you define negotiation, because I think nonprofits do a terrible job of negotiating. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly telling my staff, go back and ask, ask this, and they're like, no, that's just how it is. I, but part of that is, is we're often not in an even position to negotiate. Could you, so could you comment, like in contract negotiations, especially where it's a nonprofit versus a government entity, and the expectation is, oh, this is it, that's all you can get? You know, I appreciate Barbara asking that question. I'm going to answer one that I think is going to be more generic than the one she's asking, uh, and that is, when you're in a low-power position in negotiation, basically, do you have any hope? You just give up and take what's being given. And let me tell you that there is a huge advantage, and you're going to find this hard to believe, for being low power in a negotiation because we have done a ton of research on this. The people who create value in a negotiation are not the high power people because they don't have to. They can just take it. The low power people are the ones who are doing all the work for value creation. So, yeah. It's a lot better. You know, most of us would like to be in that high-power position where we don't have to do work. We just say, give me. But the benefit, in fact, one of the best structures is having a low and a high-power player together because the value gets created because the, if the low-power doesn't create value, they don't get anything. So it's the mother of necessity. Right? So that's, that's the real strength for being a low-power is that you're much more creative, much more sly, right? Because you have to be. Remember the dinosaurs and the little mammals? The dinosaurs roamed the earth, and the mammals ate their eggs. Oh, no more dinosaurs. Hi. My, my question goes back to, to women, again, and, and they're being predisposed to not asking. Mm -hmm. Is it really as simple as priming them to do a better job? No. At the beginning? No, it's not. Um, it turns out that some recent research has been done by, by Linda Babcock and her colleagues, and what we find is that 
for example, uh, in, this, in a particular study they were, that they're going to uh, publish soon, I know because I'm the journal editor, so I know the study's coming out. What happened is, is that they got, these are actual men and women in organizations, and uh, what they found was is that men in supervisory positions actually punish women for negotiating. Women in supervisory positions punish both men and women. <laughs> now, does that mean that you shouldn't ask? No, you just need to know what the costs are and you need to think about ways to ask. So Laurie Rudman, who has also done a whole lot of research in this area, reports that the way for women to negotiate effectively is they have to actually do, their, their negotiation style has to be slightly different than men. Men, if, let's say I'm in a job negotiation, I've got to convince you of my competence plus my likability. So when I talk about what I, you know, sort of when I talk to you about what I want in terms of my, out, my resources, I have to talk about what I can do for the organization. I have to be more communal. Is it back to that personal power difference between men and women's style? I think it's about socialization and what is acceptable behavior for males and females. By the way, let me just tell you, as, a, as my own life experience, you guys can decide what you want to do with your own lives because that's what that being an adult lets you do. My view is liking is way overvalued. You go, so you don't like me, give me the same kind of money. Oh, heck, give me more. Like him, <laughs> give me more. Right? Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Jeremy Glenn. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.